Welcome to the Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast, shedding light on wealth inequality through exceptional personalities from around the world. Today, Natalie Jean-Baptiste, Senior Programme Manager, Wealth Inequality at the Julius Baer Foundation, meets Leslie Loco, the professor, best-selling novelist and founder of the New African Futures Institute, reflects on African heritage and architecture and their link to wealth inequality. Hello, everybody. I'm Nathalie Jean-Baptiste, Senior Program Manager for Wealth Inequality at Julius Baer Foundation. And I'm very, very happy. Actually, I'm very excited to welcome Leslie Loco as my guest in our podcast series. Leslie is on the phone directly from Ghana. Leslie, a warm welcome to you. How are you? Thank you so much, Natalie. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, and thank you for the invitation to join you. I'm really looking forward to this. How are you feeling in Accra, Leslie? Hot. <laughs> it's very warm here at the moment. But it's, it's very good to be home. I arrived um, a couple of weeks ago, just sort of settling in. And it's fantastic to be back on the continent. So, so feeling good. Yeah, that's, um, that's very good. Leslie, on one hand, you are an architect and academic. And on the other hand, you are a best-selling novelist. This is quite an interesting spectrum between your two activities. And let's start with your work as a, as a professor of architecture. Tell us, what do you like about teaching architecture? Um, I think for me, and I think this is probably a little bit unusual, the, the most exciting thing is teaching students. Um, the possibility to work with younger generations, I think, you know, across my career has been, I think, one of the most significant pleasures. Um, the administrative side of being a professor has, is, is slightly less appealing to me. But the combination of leadership and working with the youth has, has been an amazing privilege, I would say. Exactly. Working with the youth, this is something you've been doing for quite a number of years. You've established the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg. You taught at various universities in the US, in the UK, and you last served as a professor and dean in New York. You've been teaching in different worlds. And I've read that in your teaching, in your craft, the questions of race, identity, and even equity are quite important. Can you tell us more about perhaps the connection between race and architecture? Sure. I mean, for me, it probably started as a student of architecture maybe 30 years ago. And I arrived at architecture school having studied sociology previously. And, you know, one of the things that was really difficult for me, you know, 30 years ago, was trying to connect what I understood about culture to what I was being taught. And for me, it's not to say that race was the most dominant um, issue for me, but certainly being African was. And I couldn't see myself reflected in any of the material I was being given. So I think the initial... Um, impetus to find that connection came from a very, very personal experience, an experience of feeling on the outside of the discipline rather than central to it. And, you know, over the, the course of the next 10, 15 years, 
I would say most of the work that I did in architecture was about trying to connect what I called the dots between where I had come from, my own cultural understanding of material, space, form, but also a sense, particularly in the global north, that what I had to offer was not what architecture wanted. So for me, I guess that was the beginning of understanding an in the inequity between students who came to the discipline and what the discipline offered them. And I left architecture after about you know, 10, 12 years out of a frustration with the discipline's inability, I think, to, to address those questions in any meaningful way. And you know, I was very lucky to come back into academia in South Africa at a time when those questions, prompted again by students, were very much at the forefront of people's minds. The whole decolonization and decarbonization movements came you know, around 2015, 2016 in, in South Africa and curiously have erupted across the world in this last year. So it feels for me a little bit as if architecture has been playing catch up um, for the past 20, 30 years, which is on the one hand quite gratifying, but also quite a strange position to be in. It's interesting the way you say that architecture is playing catch up. And as you know, at the Julius Baer Foundation, we are trying to um, address the question of wealth inequality and um, you know the wealth gap between different societies. What do we need to catch up, basically? And I remember in one of our um, earlier chat, you mentioned that you're not a wealth inequality expert per se, though I suspect in your own experience teaching architecture that you must have been confronted with the wealth gap, isn't it? No, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, I suppose I think of wealth in, in myriad ways, which I'm, which I'm sure you also do. In, you know, to begin with, there's the, the issue of a wealth of history, of a wealth of experience, a wealth of culture. And I think for so long, the, the kind of paradigm that we've been working with is that Africa comes as a poor player to the table in, in terms of architecture. Africa comes with, with a deficit. And so part of what my work in teaching has, has been about over the past 30 years is to bridge that deficit, to say that no, imagination is free. Everyone has it. Infrastructure, yes. Um, resources, yes. Those things are apportioned out in, in, in different ways. And Africa has some ways to, to in, in other words, catch up. But we're the world's youngest continent. You know, the average age here is, is just under 20. And for me, that relationship between imagination, energy, and dynamism is, is a really key component in terms of closing, closing this gap. And I also think that, you know, education plays such an important role in development, in progress. And it's the one area that, um, that we have, I guess, the least infrastructural resources for on, on this continent, which is partly why education for me is such an important field. So I think, in, you know, in some ways, yes, I'm not a wealth inequality expert, but I think if you expand the definition of wealth, as you say, I think I've been dealing with this for, for, for most of my career. Yeah, I think so too. And I think somehow architecture also tells us something about wealth inequality. And I'm, I'm wondering, in your opinion, can architecture land a hand in closing the wealth gap? Absolutely. I mean, I think architecture works at so many different scales. You know, there's the scale of the civic, the urban, the city. You know, literally how a city works is, is down in, in, in many cases, often to the level of resources available. 
And then there's the personal level, you know, how you how you express and experience your relationship to space, to form, to the ways in which you live. I think Winston Churchill says it, you know, so well. We shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And I think part of what I'm I've been trying to do for so long is to say the shaping of our space, and by that I'm talking about the African continent, is something that has to be designed, developed, and put forward by us. It cannot be that we copy other paradigms. And so much of what I see around me on this continent is, is a kind of insecurity about how to deal with space, how to understand the city, because we're, we're often talking literally in foreign tongues. So this, this question of ownership um, and the confidence to, to be able to describe and enact what your built environment should be like, I think is something that's, that's really key. And I, I think it's key in, in terms of the, the progress and development discourses. Yes, quite interesting. And on the other hand, as I said, you're also a best-selling author. <laughs> and you connect starkly different worlds and geographies in your books. And um, so I was wondering, to what extent do different forms of inequalities influence your storytelling? That's a really interesting question. I mean, um, I'm an avid reader, and I think it's Toni Morrison who said that, you know, all writers are readers before they become writers. And one of the byproducts of growing up in, in Ghana, in West Africa, you know, during the 60s and 70s, as I did as a child, you know, our economies were beginning to slide, um, resources were beginning to disappear. We had very, very few bookshops, if any. And so, as a kid, I relied on other people bringing me books from overseas. You know, when my father traveled, he would pick up whatever he could find. So as a result, we had, you know, my family and I had very wide reading tastes. And I remember at about the age of 13 or so, picking up a novel by the South African um, writer Nadine Gordimer. And the opening line of the novel is of the servant in the house speaking to the master and mistress of the house. And the master just happened to be an architect, but, but that detail escaped me at the time. And the servant says, and, and this is how the, the text rolls out, you like to have some cup of tea. And for me, I remember it was the first time I'd ever seen African accented English in print. And it was an absolute epiphany. I think it was the first time I'd ever seen anything about my own environment reflected back to me, even though it was South Africa, not West Africa. And it was the moment at which I thought, there's an opening here for me to also say something about the context in which I live. And I think that um, empowerment, that, that moment of empowerment has, has never quite left me. And you know, a lot of people say, well, writing books is so different from, from architecture. And I actually don't see it in, in, in that way at all. I think architecture tells a narrative. It, it, its vocabulary might be different. Its vocabulary might be form or space or materials in the same way that the you know the vocabulary of, of writing is, is words. And I think I've been trying to say the same thing um, over and over again, which is that cultures are infinitely complex, infinitely interesting, infinitely imaginative, and that the most important thing is, is the ability to tell one's own story. So, I mean, on the one hand, yes, moving into sex and shopping novels was a little bit of a departure, but it seemed at the time a much easier terrain to, to start to talk about some of these questions of, of identity and belonging. 
And now, in a strange way, I think the field of architecture is ready, you know, particularly in this last year, to hear a different kind of narrative. Yeah, and, and, and in that narrative, how do those inequalities that you have somehow lived yourself, you said you grew up in different you know, environments and countries, how do they come up? Do you, do you somehow think about those, I mean, the different forms of inequalities in your text, or are they reflected in the locations that you also propose in your book? It's a good question. I mean, um, when I first started writing fiction, I, I understood very quickly that there was a genre, let's call it, you know, commercial women's fiction, that didn't really deal with issues of geography other than in, you know, exotic locations and so on. And that that, that particular genre was not primed, let's say, to go underneath the skin of the more complex qu questions around wealth, poverty, inequity, injustice. And I think at the time I thought I wanted those novels to be able to tell that story, the story of difference, the story of discrimination, the story of oppression, the story of poverty, through a different medium, through the medium of, you know, the kind of books that you would pick up in the supermarket. And initially, I think it was it was quite difficult. Um, my publishers were a little bit nervous about using that genre to tell a different kind of story. But actually, I think readers picked up on it very, very quickly. And in a lot of the fan mail I got, you know, people would say to me, or, you know, fans would write back and say, you know, I learned more about, you know, a country like Burkina Faso or, uh, you know, Botswana or, you know, whatever the location was from your novel than I've learned, you know, in 10 years in school. And so I realized that there is a way in which you can tell stories, really meaningful, political, social stories through different channels, I, I suppose would be the right way to put it. And, you know, so much of what is spoken about Africa is through very particular lenses of poverty, chaos, inequity, lack of infrastructure, corruption, etc. But we have a much richer story to tell. Um, and I think the novels were the first medium for me to, to gain the confidence to tell that kind of story. Yeah, I'm picking up um, a few points. First of all, you mentioned the moments of empowerment and yes, indeed, um, I think in the, the African continent has a richer story to tell. And that brings me to you moving back to Accra and you starting something new, which I hope will bring several moments of empowerment, you know, in the lives of those that you'll be influencing. Tell us a little bit about this new project, The African Futures, Institute. I'm wondering, do you think um, if the school will be able to address some of the forms or different forms of inequalities, and in particular, perhaps, what will it do differently than other schools? You know, um, I think the relationship to, to wealth is, as I've said before, I think is quite a complex one. And at the heart of it, I believe, a society has to have a sense of inner confidence about how they go after wealth, how they display wealth, 
how they think about wealth. I think it's Freud who says it in, in a really interesting way, that one of the reasons why money is such a powerful trope is because it, it has an ability to absorb whatever we project onto it. And the, the wealth gap in Africa is staggering. You know, South Africa would be probably be one of the most unequal societies in which I've ever lived. However, when I was in New York over the past year, in some senses, that was even more astounding to me. And it made me think slightly differently about how we calculate and understand wealth. And at the, at the heart of everything I do, I think, is the sense that in order to empower people, you have to build a sense of confidence. I would say that more than anything, it's what I try to do with students. So to answer your question a little bit more directly, what I'm hoping with the African Futures Institute is that we're able to address the question of curriculum, what we teach, how we teach it, and who we teach it to, in ways that will both empower students, but also help them build their own confidence. And from that moment of, of being articulate about what you want, having the confidence to make decisions about what you want, having the confidence to reject what you don't want and propose something else in its place. For me, these are really important. They're important tools, I think, in, in, in closing these incredible gaps of inequity. And when I think about the kind of society I want to live in, it may not necessarily be the wealthiest society, but for me, it would be the most just society, a society which has equality at its basis rather than wealth accumulation. And what I see around me in Accra at the moment is a kind of uncertainty about how to think about wealth, how to think about progress, how to think about development. And I'm hoping very much that the, the AFI's presence will empower a younger generation to pause, to, to self-reflect, to think more deeply about how we move forward. Um, when, when I was teaching in Johannesburg, I often had very, very long and interesting conversations with the, with the vice chancellor. And he used to say to me, you know, in the wake of these student protests and the, and the pressures around decolonization, I'm looking around and I'm seeing the same kinds of professors in schools of architecture, the same white, middle-aged, middle-class professors. You've got to go out and find me African professors, you, you know, if that's what you say the school is about, you know, why, why aren't you doing that? And I used to say to him, you know, our job is not to go out and find people, our job is to make them. And, you know, education is a two-generation project. So I see the AFI very much as the catalyst for something that I, I think and I hope will last long after I leave the institution. So this really is a, it's, it's a leap in the dark in one sense, but I feel with every fiber of my being that this is the right place to do it and it's the right time. Um, so I, I, I feel that this is what I was meant to do. Well, this is actually a, a very promising vision and, and hope. And um, we wish you all the best in starting in Accra. And I have one last question for you. If you could chat with anyone in the world on wealth inequality, who would that be? 
I'm actually going to say two people. Um, one for maybe slightly more personal reasons and one for maybe more pragmatic reasons. One would certainly be President Obama. There's something about his vision um, that's, that's incredibly global, but also deeply personal that, that, that has huge resonance with me. And the other, I think, and I, I expect many people would say this, would be Bill Gates. And again, it's somebody who has amassed great wealth, but also shown an incredible commitment to spreading it in a way that makes it possible for others to share in its bounty. So, yeah, it would be those two characters. Very good. Thank you very much, Leslie, for giving us your time and having a conversation about wealth inequality, education, architecture, your books. I very much look forward to seeing you and then we wish you all the best with what you're starting in Accra. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and, and, and getting to know you. It's been great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Inequality Initiative podcast. What did you think of this episode? Please go to www.wealth-inequality.net for more insights into the pressing issue of wealth inequality.